the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You know, I've always wondered, why would you spend $2 million of your own money to get a job that lasts just two years with no guarantee of it being renewed, pays you only $175,000 a year, and it's all because of your love for country? Yeah, right. We saw recently, if you are viewers of 60 Minutes, the exposing of the insider trading benefits that we saw uh, Steve Croft uh, try to address with our own uh, former House Speaker and uh, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi here of San Francisco. Boy, she didn't like that conversation, did she? Well, if you think that uh, Steve Croft of CBS was the one that actually pulled the cover on the whole issue of the insider trading deal that Congress enjoys, no, not actually. In fact, well before Steve Croft talking about this publicly, my next guest had, in fact, uh, very much it is topic of an expose book he's written called Throw Them All Out, How Politicians and Their Friends Get Rich Off Insider Stock Tips, Land Deals, and Cronyism That Would Send the Rest of Us to Prison. Peter Schweitzer, thanks so much for being with us tonight on the program. I'm glad we have finally a, a chance to have you on the show, Peter. Oh, it's great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. And I've always wondered, you know, for years, I thought, you know, boy, the amount of money that these guys spend to get this job that barely pays $175,000 a year, there's got to be some kind of a story behind the story. And sure enough, inside the pages of your new book, you reveal just exactly what the story is. Yeah, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at um, politicians and thinking, okay, well, they're getting rich, they're taking money into the table, they're getting bribes, uh, and certainly there are some that do that, but, but a far more insidious uh, problem is what I call legal graft, and that is their ability to do things that are legal for them to do. Uh, the rest of us would be another story, but that includes things like insider trading, special land deals, uh, getting IPO shares of stock. Uh, that really are legalized bribery, and it helps explain in part why so many people come to Washington relatively middle class uh, and leave very rich, or come to Washington pretty rich and leave even more rich. Uh, and the reason is because they get all these uh, uh, sort of perks with the job, as it were, uh, that again, really it comes about because the legal code 
covers us but doesn't cover them. Well, that's the amazing part of your book, uh, Throw Them All Out, the fact that they have, since they write the laws, they have exempted themselves from things like insider trading. So Martha Stewart, for example, we all know the story. She sold about $230,000 of M-clone shares. Um, She ended up paying a penalty of almost as much, $195,000, for simply avoiding about fifty grand in losses. She did five months jail time, five months uh, home confinement, two years probation. She could have faced ten years, and that was just this horrible crime that she committed. And yet, ironically, uh, let's talk about a, a California congressman, Daryl Issa, whose uh, tax return in nineteen—I'm sorry—in in, two thousand nine showed that his net worth was about one hundred and fifty million dollars. A year later, he's worth two hundred and ninety-five million dollars. He's he's managed to double his net worth. Daryl Issa has Peter in just one year, and nobody asks any questions. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the problem is is that it's a, a pattern that you see in all kinds of ways. Certainly there are people that, uh, uh, you know, let's say they inherit money or they hit it big, but the problem is is that they're just, there's a pattern that just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, and, and I'll give you a couple of cases, one Republican, one Democrat, that I talk about in the book. Two speakers of the House, uh, Dennis Hastert, who was Speaker of the House uh, from the late 1990s to the mid-2000s. When he became Speaker of the House, his net worth was around $300,000. When he left less than a decade later as Speaker, it was up to $11 million. How do you do that when you're earning $175,000 a year? Well, in his case, he did something called the land deal. And again, this is completely legal, and even the ethics committees say it's ethical, although I don't think the rest of of us would share that opinion. What he did was buy 333 acres of land in rural Illinois, where he's from. A few months after that, he put in an earmark to the federal highway bill to build something called the Prairie Parkway, $207 million of our money to build this highway. You've probably already guessed that this highway just happened to run right along the property that he had bought just a few months earlier. Circumstantial. It's coincidental, Peter, I'm sure. (laughs) One heck of a coincidence. He was able to turn around and sell that property yet less than a year later for more than twice what he paid for it. So he netted $2 million on that one transaction alone. Uh, to give you another example, uh, that would be Nancy Pelosi, who was the Speaker of the House that followed Hastert. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, when she came into Congress, had a net worth of around $3 million. Uh, over the next 20 years, it went up 876%, Whoa. which means they were averaging around 24% per year compounded return on their investments. Now, I'm certainly, you know, there are things in there that were just straight and they got lucky on, but one of the things that Nancy Pelosi has been uh, very active in doing is getting IPO shares of stock. And this happens to come from a company or companies that have business before the house. And IPOs, for those who aren't familiar, are initial public offerings of stock. If you come in the friends and family round of it, basically somebody gives you stock that you can buy very cheaply. And the day that the company goes public, you can double or triple your money. This is something that Visa did when she was Speaker of the House in 2008. She literally netted $100,000 in one day, thanks to the access to these uh, special shares of stock. Um, And then this happened at a time when she was Speaker, and there were two pieces of legislation that Visa did not want 
to pass out of the House. And guess what? Neither one of them ever even got a, a vote on the House floor. Uh, for most people, that would be a huge conflict of interest and would lead to allegations of uh, uh, you know, bribery or some form of uh, quid pro quo. But in Congress, this is deemed ethical and legal. Well, let's put this into a context that all of us can perhaps relate to. Were a case to come before a judge, say for an individual to whom the judge was related or a company in which the judge had interests, uh, the judge would most naturally, if he or she is ethical and is following the, the, the rule book for judicial ethics, would recuse him or herself. They would, they would recognize the conflict of interest not in the public interest, and as a result, they would decline to participate um, uh, granting any sort of judgment. They would decline participating in the case. Uh, But this is not the case when it comes to the United States Congress, because they get to make up the rules, Peter, and they get to determine what's ethical and what's not ethical based on what's in their own personal best interest, not of the country. Am I right? No, you are exactly right. Wow. In fact, in the case of a judge... If you were to rule in a case uh, involving a company where you owned more than $25 worth of stock in that company, it's a felony. You're going to jail as a judge. Members of Congress do that all the time. Uh, during the health care debate in 2009, you had people on both sides of the aisle, those opposed, those against, who were literally writing amendments, doing things in committees, writing legislation with one hand, and on the other hand, were trading large amounts of health care stock at the same time. Well, didn't I read inside your new book, Throw Them Out, that um, even our current speaker, John Boehner, bought interest in five different health care insurance companies, even as he was publicly campaigning to kill the public health care option? Yes, and again, it's always a a question of interesting timing. He literally bought tens of thousands of dollars of stock in health insurance companies three days before it became publicly known to the rest of us that the public option uh, was dead. And, of course, the public option was the idea that the government was going to compete with health insurance companies. So you can imagine when it became known... Uh, the price of all of those uh, stocks went up. You know, to me, we would not tolerate this anywhere else in America. I mean, it's the equivalent of saying a sports athlete on a professional team plays in a game, but also gets to bet on the game in which he's playing. Well, ask, ask Pete Rose how well that worked. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it would not be tolerated in a minute, and yet something far more important, which is making laws in our country, uh, that goes on all the time. And literally, there are congressmen that make multi-million dollar bets based on legislation that they are backing and that they've put up in the House. Well, I tell you, when we come back, I'm going to share a little bit of information that comes right out of the roll call newspaper in Washington, D.C., that will shed some light on exactly what's going on back there. Uh, Peter Schweitzer is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, Throw Them Out, How Politicians and Their Friends Get Rich Off of Insider Stock Tips, Land Deals, and Cronyism That Would Send the Rest of Us to Prison. You know what's ironic about this? If you you just listen on the surface, ignore the dollar amounts, just listen to what's going on, as Peter described, you would think to yourself, the founding fathers would never have permitted this to take place. 
But in 1776 and in the ensuing years after the American Revolution and the passage of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, etc., etc., things like Wall Street weren't on anybody's radar screen, IPOs, publicly traded companies, none of this existed. Now imagine fast-forwarding 250-something years. Our founding fathers, I think, at many levels, not only would not recognize this Congress, but listening to the way the Congress conducts its own ethics today would probably look a lot more like the King of England from whom we escaped than any sense of American freedom and Fairness. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Peter Schweitzer, the author, he broke the story on insider trading well before CBS ever touched it. His book is called Throw Them Out, newly published by HMH Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. We'll come back to more insider information regarding the insider trading and more Kind of the story of what your congressman would rather you don't know as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Money makes the world go round. It makes the world go round. Well, if not the whole world, at least uh, the world inside the beltway. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with our special guest tonight, Peter Schweitzer. The book, Throw Them All Out. How politicians and their friends get rich off of insider stock tips, land deals, and cronyism that would send the rest of us to prison. And this, I think, is the stark irony behind all of this. I mean, between the insider deals and then the other thing, too, that your book talks about. We all know the name Solyndra, the company's based right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've seen taxpayer loans to private firms owned uh, by congressional and administrative cronies, and nobody even bats an eye. If we did this kind of behavior in private industry, you'd all be going to jail. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, there is uh, a huge connection between people who got uh, green energy loans and grants uh, and, and the owners of those companies making campaign contributions and raising money, uh, in this case, for President Obama. I mean, if you did that in the private sector, uh, you would have huge legal problems. And this, I think, is, is part of the problem. Uh, the issue related to green energy and Solyndra is a problem of when you give political figures the opportunity to pass out billions of dollars of cash in whatever name you want to attach to it, um, they're going to tend to give that money to their friends and political allies. It's human nature. Uh, and I think we need to be weary about this and, and simply create a, a circumstance in our country where we're not going to do this. The crony capitalism is destructive. It's one thing if you have the National Institute of Health, we have peer-reviewed panels deciding which you know institutions of learning get which grants. That's not what happens here, and I would argue it would pretty much be impossible to set that up anywhere else because presidents have enormous power and authority, and they're going to try to find ways to make sure that their friends are favored. Well, and you know, as we've seen even in the news of recent, you can be a former governor of a state like New Jersey, get a job as the head of a big uh, hedge fund, and then when everything falls apart and they say, well, there's a couple of billion dollars missing, you shrug your shoulders and say, gee, I don't know where it went. I mean, this is what... 
what's interesting, and so that listeners know that you're just not just making this stuff up. Um, I read a recent report, um, Peter, and you might have seen it yourself in Roll Call newspaper out of Washington D.C. And th- this is a number that you know you talk about the ninety-nine percenters versus the one percenters. This ought to open up the eyes of everybody. When we saw the decline in the markets beginning back in the fall of 2008, we all know what the country has been through. The same period of time that the average American saw a reduction in their net worth between losses in their 401ks and IRAs, losses in the value of their homes, etc. The same period of time when the public's average net worth dropped between 25 and 30 percent, Members of Congress, the elite 535, saw their net worth increase, increase over the same period of time by an equal percentage. So, you know, we're talking about, what is that, a gap of about 50 to 60 percent? They were up by 25 to 30, while the rest of us were down by 25 to 30. And nobody ought to look at that with a jaundiced eye. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the chapters I have in the book is on the financial crisis in 2008. And what you find is that there were a series of briefings that the Fed chairman and the Treasury secretary gave before the crisis became fully wide known and widespread uh, in the American public to our political figures. Uh, On the night of September 18th, they gave a handful of congressmen, about a dozen congressmen, an apocalyptic briefing that said the Dow is going to go down 20%. We're going to face a major economic crisis. And the Treasury Secretary Paulson, in his memoirs, says that the congressman sat there ashen-faced and stunned. So what did these people do with this information? They got on the telephone is what they did. The, the, the next day, uh, almost all of them went and sold massive amounts of their own stock. So they were able to avoid the losses that we did because they had access to that info, inside information. There was one congressman who did even worse, uh, Congressman Spencer Backus from Alabama. That next morning, he bought a option that shorted... The market. Shorting the market means you're betting, or in this case, knowing that it's going to go down. And he bought a leveraged uh, options trade and literally made $10,000 in that day based on the information he got from the Fed chairman and the Treasury secretary the night before. And this is completely legal, and it's deemed ethical. That's you know, what's stunning. Well, and the amazing thing, too, Peter, I mean, to, to hearken back to one of our more popular presidents, Abe Lincoln, who talked about government of, by, and for the people, when you see that the combined net worth of members of the United States Senate gives them, if we just divide it by 100, uh, they're worth each about 6 to $7 million. Congress itself is worth over 2 billion dollars in net worth. Some of these guys, as we've indicated before, have seen a doubling of their net worth inside of a year or two on a job that only pays $175,000 a year. Of, by, and for the people? Well, it might be for the people, but it's certainly not of and by, because these people in Washington, D.C. do not represent the 99ers at all. They are uniquely and almost exclusively the club of one percenters. What I'm curious about is, with all the angst that we've seen that's been, frankly, focused at a lot of weird locations. I mean, they're they're protesting in Oakland. I don't know of the word headquarters of any big financial firm based in Oakland whatsoever. Why aren't we protesting in the halls of Congress? Why aren't we demanding that members of the United States Congress live under the same in rules and, 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 and bylaws that the rest of us have to live under? By golly, if Martha Stewart ought to be held accountable for insider trading, that so should every member of Congress. 
Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, for me, there's a difference. Uh, somebody like the late Steve Jobs, you know, who became very wealthy, he became wealthy providing goods and services that people wanted to buy. The problem is that I have is people who make large amounts of money through cronyism, through inside deals, through inside knowledge that we don't have. That's the corrupting effect that we're seeing. And I think you see people from uh, Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party who probably don't agree on a whole lot, but I do think there is this recognition that crony capitalism is highly corrupting, highly damaging. It's taking place in both political parties, and it needs to stop. And that's really why I titled the book Throw Them All Out. It's not to say that there aren't good people in Washington, but both sides, everyone, has to have a zero-tolerance policy for this stuff. Well, you're right, and, 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 and there are good people in Washington, and there's a couple of members of Congress that are good friends of mine. Tom McClintock, who was on just ahead of you, was one of them. But you know, the interesting thing, as an aside, is we just talk about the overall averages and, and the, the total history of what we see unfolding in Washington, D.C. Uh, I have long wondered, as I've seen friends of mine that have first gone into, uh, you know, city-level politics. They run for school board, city council. They move up. Maybe they become a member of the assembly. They get into the legislature. Eventually, they move into the Congress. And I've seen the slow, progressive uh, corruption of them. And I've seen this. this, What is it about Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway? Is it the water that changes them so that they go from being upright, outstanding, wholesome individuals to suddenly be a bunch of crooks? And now we finally figured out what the deal is. They become thieves because it's legal to. What they would have done on the outside that would have landed them in jail, they can do freely on the inside without reprisals. Ladies and gentlemen, no member of the United States Congress should ever, ever be exempt from the laws that you and I are exempt from under any circumstances whatsoever. And to do so, to allow so ought to be deemed as an embarrassment to this country, and we need to hold their feet to the fire. To which degree I have to agree with Peter Schweitzer. Throw them all out. Let's start fresh. Let's bring some integrity back to Washington, D.C., and let's make Congress live under the laws that it passes for the rest of us. To fail to do so, I think, is an embarrassment to the American experiment, and probably is going to head us down the road to our own, un- ultimately unavoidable, I believe, self-destruction. Throw them all out the book. Peter Schweitzer, the author, my guest on this segment of Lifeline. Peter, thanks so very much for uh, getting me upset. And hopefully we've gotten a few listeners upset, too. Upset enough to do something. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Besieged and beset on all sides. Either you can't get a break or your life feels like it's in utter turmoil. Maybe your marriage is a disaster or your finances are in ruin. Perhaps your business or your job is simply falling apart. Or you're losing the battle against drugs, alcohol, depression. Well, whatever it might be, you feel like ancient Jerusalem, the city in ruin, the walls destroyed, and all seems hopeless. It did then for the Israelites, as it perhaps does now for you. Until Nehemiah entered the picture. Today, a look at practical insights from the book of Nehemiah, a new book published 
called Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed. And with me today in studio is its author, the senior pastor of Destiny Christian Fellowship and speaker on the Destined for Victory broadcast heard weekday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. here on KFAX, Pastor Paul Shepard. Pastor Paul, great to see you again. Hey, Craig, it's always good to see you and to be here in the studio. This book, boy, um, you think about the title alone, and this could describe so many sets of circumstances, not only in terms of many layers in which we see the world today, politically, economically, militaristically. We see what's going on in our own nation, economically, morally, spiritually, and then down to our own lives and the individual turmoil and challenges we might be facing. And yet through it all, there's a very distinct message that is communicated in the historical accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem and Nehemiah entering the picture with a whole fresh new approach. Why the book? Absolutely. I am so glad that the Lord blessed me to preach this series a couple of years ago from the book of Nehemiah. And the more I studied, the richer it became because I'm understanding. In fact, the the older I get and the more years I put in in pastoral ministry, the more I realize that the Bible is for today like never before. It is timely and it is necessary. So as I studied for a sermon series a couple of years ago, I realized that this is not just for history. This is for current application. One of the most important statements Paul made um, is that he said, things written aforetime are written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So when I uh, decided that this needed to become a book and I have a writing partner, James Werning, uh, we sat down and began to take the sermon series and make a book out of it. We both saw how important it is for today's world, no matter whether you're talking about our individual lives, our families, our governmental life, our life on the job, wherever it is, and certainly in our churches, we need to realize the enemy's job is to kill, steal, and destroy, but God is a God of restoration. That's why he raised up Nehemiah, and that's why I wrote this book, to help people practically apply its principles. One of the things that strikes me about your treatment of the story of Nehemiah and the destruction of Jerusalem that is so practical and apropos to where any believer is at today, and that is drawing the distinction between looking at circumstances and challenges, whatever they might be, a city in ruin or a life in ruin, with spiritual eyes versus our, our natural eyes. And and so often the inclination is to say, wow, I mean, I, I am in so much trouble here, financial debt and taxes and all of that. There's just no way out. And we tend to look at things in the natural and there's an easy way to give the enemy victory through that sense of defeatism, isn't there, when we look at it that way? That's so true. And what we've got to realize is that when the Lord saved us, he saved us not just to take us to heaven, because if he wanted to do that, we'd get saved one moment and die the next. He saves us so that he can leave us in this real world with all of the fallenness around us. But he can help us not only experience restoration to do his will in the midst of the darkness in which we live, but he's going to make us restorers and people who can bring hope to those around us. Just like Nehemiah asked for a leave of absence from his job 
and traveled so that he could help build the city back to a place of security. God is doing that here and now in our lives, in our churches, in our ministries, wherever we will give him the right to lead, we're finding that God is an awesome restorer. Is this a challenge for believers today, maybe for the church in general, this sense that while we recognize that our hope lies in God's kingdom, that we are nevertheless in this world, but not to be of this world, and yet it's almost as if believers sort of try to have one foot in each, not understanding the distinction between being in it but not of it. Yeah, we really have to become comfortable. Since we are not home yet, Christians are not home. The Bible is real clear. We are on our way home, but none of us have been there yet. And so the closest thing we can get to home is to walk in the Spirit here and now, to be led by the Spirit and to be led by the principles and teachings of the Word here and now because in so doing, the Lord will help us experience His perfect will in an imperfect set of environments, and he will help us become restorers and those that bring hope to the folks around us. A lot of this sort of pivots then on the nature, the caliber and quality of our relationship with the Lord, doesn't it? And when you you speak of the notion of, of seeing these matters through spiritual eyes and not at natural eyes, that I think would suggest that there is a need then to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Absolutely. In the same way that Nehemiah was just sort of minding his business as the cupbearer of a king, a very prominent job I describe in the Bible. It wasn't That's not being a butler. That was a very prominent position. That's more than just go fetch me some coffee. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. He meant something to that king. And yet the Lord put such a heavy burden on him that he asked for a leave of absence. One of the chapters in the book I talk about, if you're going to go, go big. And he asked for a leave of absence from a pagan king who under normal circumstances would have no inclination to allow him to go to Jerusalem of all places and and work. So we know it was a God thing. And in the same way, all of us who are listening today are people who are people of purpose. God has a plan for each of our lives, whether you're talking about your career, your family, God has a plan for all of us. And if we will follow the Holy Spirit, he will lead us into his purpose and destiny for our lives. And he'll give us the wisdom to fulfill it. So this isn't necessarily the the, the matter of of approaching the condition of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah hears the story of what's going on there. And the city is in ruins. The walls have all been knocked down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. He hears the story of what's going on there. This is not necessarily a job that he signed up for it. But he's tremendously burdened by all of this, isn't he? Yes. One of the things I've often talked about, the ABCs of discovering God's will and the B in the way I lay it out is burdens. We have to pay attention to the things that grieve us deeply, not merely compassion. We're all people of compassion if we have the spirit of Christ in us, but beyond regular compassion, if you will, God every now and then puts a burden so deep in our hearts that we feel like I can't be fully satisfied until I do something to address this problem. And in Nehemiah's case, God 
put the burden of rebuilding that wall on him. In our lives, God gives us burdens about the things around us, whether it's in our family, in our neighborhood, in another community. You, you can see a story on TV, and the Lord might give you a humongous burden, and you feel like, I've got to do something to address that. I encourage people, pray about your burdens, because there's probably an element of you fulfilling God's purpose in there. And so if you'll pray about it, the Lord will lead you, and he'll bless you to fulfill it. In the flesh, using natural eyes, this set of circumstances as the report came to Nehemiah probably seemed pretty hopeless on the surface. I mean, there, there wasn't much left with. Uh, when we talk about rebuilding, sometimes we would like to infer that that means there's some sort of a resource available to us in which to rebuild. In this case, there really wasn't much. What is it, in your opinion, in, in being so familiar with the story of Nehemiah, Pastor Shepard, that that communicated to Nehemiah that there was hope that this could actually be done. It came straight from the Lord because you're right. In the natural, there is no way a man who doesn't even live there anymore, he lives and serves in another kingdom altogether, but that he could come to town and make a difference. There's no natural reason to believe that at all. But we all know that with God, things don't always make sense, but he just has a way of making it come to pass. And so Nehemiah, as you said, with no resources and no reason to believe he could be successful, just followed this burden, prayed and fasted, and the Lord gave him extraordinary favor and supernatural anointing to be able to do. In fact, what what we learn as we study his life is that he was able to accomplish in less than two months what prior generations couldn't do in decades. That's because if God gets into a project, it goes from natural to supernatural. Pastor Paul Shepard with us today in studio. A look at his latest book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed. The new book available, by the way, through the broadcast, Destined for Victory, and uh, you can check that out online at pastorpaul.net. That's pastorpaul.net. The broadcast destined for victory weekday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. When we come back, looking at how Nehemiah served not one, but two kings, as our conversation with Pastor Paul Shepard continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation today in studio. Pleased to have with us Pastor Paul Shepard. He is, of course, senior and founding pastor of Destiny Christian Fellowship in the city of Fremont. If you're new to town or visiting, like to check him out Sunday mornings. They have service times at both 8.30 and 11 a.m. Details available on the web at destinybayarea.org. That's destinybayarea.org. The new book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, Practical Insights from the Book of Nehemiah. I'm struck, Pastor Paul, by the notion that, as you articulated in the previous segment, while Nehemiah served as a cupbearer in the court of the kingdom, it was pretty serious work. I mean, this is the guy that essentially would, uh, how should we say, take the bullet for the king if there was ever an attempt on the king's life. That's right. And yet, while he served a secular king, a pagan king, he never stopped serving the God of Israel. 
Boy, Craig, if, if we don't come to understand today that no matter where you work, Google or Apple or whatever company, Macy's, I don't care where you work, yes, you have a secular job, and yes, God uses that to help you pay your bills, but when it really comes down to it, all of us work for the Lord. You might get your check from a company or a store or whatever the case is, but we work for the Lord. And the more we take up the responsibility to see ourselves as kingdom plants, wherever you are, you're a plant for God's kingdom. And the more you take up that work and fulfill that assignment, the more we'll have personal fulfillment. I believe that the way to experience personal fulfillment is to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Trust God with all the details thereafter. So it's serving God really no matter where you've been placed or planted. Some folks, I think, get the erroneous idea that, well, in order to serve God, you have to have the initials REV in front of your name. <laughs> or you have to be up in a pulpit or on a radio station or or somehow be uniquely, distinctively in quote-unquote ministry. Correct. But in fact, there are far more examples throughout Scripture of people working in the quote-unquote secular environment who nevertheless served God where they were planted. Absolutely. What we need to realize is that Ephesians 4 tells us God puts some offices, so to speak, in the kingdom, things like apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But Paul said they are gifts to the church. And he said the purpose God put those people on the planet for was that we everyday believers might do the work of the ministry. So we need to realize your minister is only a coach. You're the one who plays the game on the court or on the field. And so the coach shouldn't get all of the attention. It is about enabling and preparing people for works of service. And the more we take up the ministry, when you go to work, you're going to to a ministry event. When you go to do something in your community or on on your, uh, on your school campus, if you're a student, you are going to work for the King of Kings, and he is the one who's going to reward you. We were talking before the break about the challenges that came to Nehemiah's attention, learning of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, the challenges that were faced, literally the city had been destroyed, the walls were in ruin, leaving the people of Israel also very vulnerable. Very much and so. Nehemiah gets word of all of this and suddenly he's got a plan in place and he goes to the king and says um, I need to take a little uh, leave of absence here because <laughs> <laughs> yep. God is calling me to do another work and as you were mentioning this would seem in the natural through through the flesh to be absolutely impossible, insurmountable. It, it, it just why even bother sort of scenario and yet Nehemiah pressed on and one of the distinctions that you call out inside the book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, is the distinction of the empowerment that Nehemiah had because he was anointed. Yes. That seems for a lot of believers in the pews to be kind of a highfalutin word. That's right. Uh, break it down and help us understand. When we talk about God's anointing, what exactly is that? And to whom does he distribute that anointing? I believe... Uh, the anointing is best understood this way. The anointing is God's presence and power 
sent to accomplish a specific purpose. So when we are anointed, we're simply saying, Lord, you're here. I'm believing you to empower me so that I can do what you want me to do in this particular setting or environment. That's the anointing. Nothing more, nothing less. It doesn't make you spooky. It doesn't make you weird. It only makes you efficient and able to accomplish whatever God wants you to do in any particular environment. So many believers have that that definition so backwards. A lot of churches today, the anointing means if, if they say, for example, after church on Sunday, boy, pastor was really anointed. That means that he got through the sermon in less than an hour. <laughs> But the anointing then, as you're suggesting, is something that's not held exclusively for some sort of uniquely spiritual work, preaching God's word, evangelizing. But in fact, God can bring in places anointed upon us no matter where we're at. It really is about the matter of the attitude of our heart and our our ability to be available and to rely on him then. It is. That's the key to it. If we will just wake up every day and say, Lord, go with me as I go to work, as I go to school, as I drive these freeways and and streets, as I interact with people, you can be anointed to smile. You can be anointed to give someone a word of encouragement. The Lord can anoint you to walk up to someone you don't even know and, and just say something to them. You don't know what it will mean to them, but when you just obey the promise, you have. In some cases, you'll see them break out into tears and they say, oh my goodness, how did you know what I was going through? I've seen that happen. I've experienced it myself. And we need to believe God that every day in any circumstance, he will anoint you to fulfill his purpose. One of the points that you make in the book, I think is an important one that perhaps Christians don't really fully have a, an entire grasp on sometimes. We run into circumstances where we're facing challenges maybe in our marriage relationship or with the kids or at work or with our finances, whatever it might be. And and we look at it and say, well, the enemy's just fighting us. <laughs> and, and that may very well be true, but there's also a dynamic here at play that I want to have you spend some time helping us better understand, and that is God, as he did in the case of Israel, um, was very clear about his blessing. He basically said, if you obey me, I will bless you greatly, but if you disobey me, I'm going to scatter you to the ends of the earth. There is a blessing that God is offering, but it's a conditional one. It is, and we have to learn that with obedience comes the best path to all of the blessings God wants to place in our lives. But as was the case with Israel, sometimes it is the case with us as present-day followers of Christ, which is we will get into areas of disobedience. Uh, I certainly know what that's like, and so do uh, many of those listening to us today. We cannot testify that we've always been correct, always done the right thing. In fact, the truth be told, some of us have made our biggest blunders after accepting Christ, after being involved in kingdom living. And while that is true, here's the good news and one of the incentives for writing this book. When you have had destruction take place, and when I talk about the enemy, I always think of the enemy as threefold, not onefold. A lot of people think enemy means Satan. But the truth of the matter is the Bible shows us that we have three enemies we all face. The world, which its system is against the kingdom of God. The flesh, which I call the enemy in a me. Uh, 
and then the devil. And so when you think about the world, the flesh, and the devil, and how sometimes they've impacted us to the point where we have gotten way out of God's will, God says, I'm not finished with you. Just like he wasn't finished with Israel, God is not finished with us when we fail. I know what it is to fail. I know what it is to repent. I know what it is to be chastened by God, but I have found God to be an incredible restorer. God is the best recycler in the universe. He knows how to take us no matter where we are and rebuild us and restore us and make us effective in doing his will. Today, a look at rebuilding what the enemy almost destroyed, a new book written by Pastor Paul Shepard. Information, by the way, about the book and Pastor Paul's ministry by going to pastorpaul.net. That's pastorpaul.net. You can also order the book online through that website. Absolutely. Right. And for those that like to do electronic reading, just go to Amazon or any of those places on the web and you can download it to your e-readers. Excellent. All right. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation, more of our look at rebuilding what the enemy almost destroyed. Practical insights from the book of Nehemiah by Pastor Paul Shepard. Back with more right after this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 